0: Hello, and welcome to episode 93 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl, and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management, so passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two, and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Greg Smith, who is the author of Career Conversations, how to get the best from your talent pool. Early in his career, he realised our motivations and behaviours often determine the way in which we work with others, the way we lead and whether or not we reach our career potential. This led him to complete his Masters in Career Development in 2006 and he also later assisted Edith Cowan University in delivering that particular program. Over a long and varied leadership career, he's benefited from several major career transitions this includes leading large international trading businesses at CEO level, followed by leading various consulting businesses, and finally, co-founding and leading Deliberate Practice, a HR consulting firm as managing partner and CEO. Greg's extensive experience and strong track record of successfully shaping and driving business turnarounds, together with his expertise in career development, executive coaching and mentoring, allows him to assist leaders to enhance their effectiveness and career satisfaction. He's also creating theoretical and applied aspects of solution-focused coaching from the Coaching Psychology Unit at the University of Sydney. He's a professional member of the Career Development Association of Australia and a certified practicing marketer and fellow of the Australian Marketing Institute. During the course of the conversation, we explore his book in detail. I start off by asking Greg why did he decide to write this book? We speak about the new career reality and how we can reinvent ourselves. We discuss the importance of personal brand and the value of networking, and I finish up the interview by asking Greg about how we lead career conversations and why a written plan is so important. So keep listening. As always, really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with Greg Smith, author of Career Conversations, How to Get the Best from Your Talent Pool. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor, and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Greg, to the Synergy Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you actually uh, taking the time to come out to Synergy HQ and uh, be a guest uh, so that the listeners have a bit of
1: an idea of who you are. Who is Greg Smith? Uh, well, thanks very much, Julie. It's great to be here. Um, I guess, uh, in the first instance, careers and leadership have always really fascinated me and uh, over the course of my entire career, and I've spent... Um, uh, 20 years running companies for organizations like ancor and north and, and others and then uh, then spent another 20 years in consulting uh, and mainly around career management leadership that kind of thing and then decided in 2010 with business partners to start uh, our own HR consulting business deliberate practice so um, and I uh, so I co-founded that with uh, Peter Bowen and um, and was the um, CEO and managing partner of that for a number of years, and uh, and now have um, uh, sold out of that business, and uh, but still collaborate with the, the team down at Deliberate Practice, and and do my own executive coaching work, um, where I really like to help um, aspiring leaders and experienced leaders become uh, better leaders, and uh, and more particularly incorporate. Uh, the career uh, capability or holding career conversations capability into their everyday leadership routine. So that's my real focus for today, for uh, my work today, my consulting work today. So we're here to talk about uh, your book,
0: Career Conversations, How to Get the Best from Your Talent Pool, and uh, published by Wiley. Why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well... Over the time, particularly the consulting work, Julian, I think brought real focus for me that many leaders really struggled with holding even basic career conversations with their employees, and in, in some cases would actively would do almost anything to avoid them, and and they ended up being add-ons in performance reviews or a little career chat. But um, today, I, I don't think a little career chat along the way will cut it. So. Um, the, other, the other thing that struck me was it's not that difficult, so you know, leaders do all sorts of really complex things, and I kind of thought, well, it's not that hard, and uh, I really wanted to uh, write a, an easy-to-read, really practical book about how to go about the rudiments of it, because, as I said, it's not that hard, and I particularly didn't want to write a, um, an academic-style book. I've been an academic, so I know what that looks like. Um, it was really to, to write a book that was going to be something that leaders could pick up, read, get the rudiments of it pretty quickly and implement straight away, um, not having to spend days in workshops or anything like that. They could just pick the book up and, and go run with it straight away. Okay.
0: So I want to start off with a bit of an excerpt from the introduction. Hmm. I believe everyone has a right to career satisfaction, which is a fundamental source of energy, creativity and capability. For many, however, career satisfaction can be as elusive as self-esteem. That said, when career harmony does exist, problems of the greatest complexity seem to be solved more quickly and easily. The positive impact on our lives is palpable and exciting. The payoff, better career conversations can therefore be remarkable. In my experience, many leaders are fearful of confronting the lack of career satisfaction and its consequences, preferring to ignore the realities that surround them. Despite all that has been written and said about employees as free agents, I continue to be amazed at just how many leaders still feel ill-equipped and reluctant to have meaningful career conversations with their employees. So the reason that resonated with me is in the work that we do, I'm noticing more and more organisations don't necessarily have the support structures in place for leaders to perform at their peak. Mm. And when I read that, it really made me think that that supports that idea. So why do you think that organisations aren't giving their leaders the capability and the frameworks to be able to have these career conversations?
1: It's a, it's a really good uh, question, Julian. And um, there's probably many reasons why that hasn't happened. And in some ways, I think it's it's the way that professional development has evolved. And I think today, uh, careers, whilst the whole notion of you've got to manage your own career has been around for a long time now and everyone gets that, um, not many actually know how to do it. You know, some just do it innately. They, they don't need any help at all. They just, you know, go off and, and seem to put their careers together in a very successful way. Um, but that's not everyone. And, and many people have found need need help doing it. Um, so I think it's it's kind of an evolutionary thing. And that's now coming of age. There's a, some sort of maturity happening with careers. So, uh, perhaps if I could give you an example to contrast that, if uh, if you look at executive coaching, you know that's that sort of arose in Australia in the in the nineties, and many years before that in the US. But in the nineties, executive coaching was really seen uh, for people who were the organisation's problem children, more than that kind of thing, and then the idea evolved to being actually... No, this is really fundamental to an executive's um, development. In fact, uh, almost today, well, haven't you got a coach? You know, doesn't your organisation value you? And yet, back in the 90s, it was sort of the organisation's problem to uh, children. And that the whole aspect of executive coaching... Arose from the nineties to, to now through the work of a lot of people who who were very um, prolific in both the academic side and the practical side of it, uh, like uh, Dr. Anthony Grant um, and, and many others who've really pushed the uh, very successfully uh, profiled what executive coaching can do. So that's where that's an example of an evolutionary process that's ended up being today, where we just you know, gosh, you know must have you surely you've got a coach um and i think the same thing funnily enough even though careers has a lot longer history i think in a funny sort of way careers have found has found itself in the same place today largely through the growth in technology and that's now and there's all this emphasis on soft skills and you know gosh we need to think about our careers because um you know the robots are coming and all that kind of thing but what it has done has brought a focus to careers in a way that we've never had before. And then, in turn, what that's brought a focus to is, well, who's going to deliver that career support? You know, does the organisation go off and hire them a career coach from somewhere? Or do they do something else? Or, more particularly, uh, should that come from their leader, which is what I'm advocating here, that it shouldn't be something that is separate or something that HR does or something we delegate off to anyone as a leader i don't know why the heck you wouldn't want to be talking to your people and a career conversation is the best way i know or one of the best ways i know of building trust and a connection with your team which goes to them there which can help them at a time maybe when they need your help the most as a leader so it's not a case of of delegating it off it's a it's a case of saying Um, this is really important for my leadership skill, my suite of skills, and it's a really important activity that that I really want to be doing. And I think that's the, the key, is you've got to genuinely want to do it and genuinely have an interest in people's development. And to me, leadership is without doubt, one of the fundamental aspects of it without doubt, is being able to build capability. And then that goes to retention and engagement. And we all know, there's lots and lots of research about that in terms of what it does for organisational success and and the success of individuals. So I want to I want to start digging deep into
0: the book yeah. because I think there's a lot of really important uh, stuff here that I'd like to share with the listeners. And you start by talking about the the need to move from this old career model to the new career model. Yeah. What's this new career model? What what should our listeners be thinking about? <laughs>
1: Do that. I probably have to talk about the old model just very briefly, um, which goes back to the last century. And Donald Super, one of the one of the prolific career researchers of his time, um, he he mapped out pretty well the, the old career model where there was a series of career stages you went through, but it was very much a linear pathway. It was something that our grandfathers would have followed, and um, you know it would start with a, a a fantasy stage, and this is where boys thought of becoming. Policemen and firemen and girls sort of becoming uh, ballerinas and nurses. And you've got to, for the listeners, just remember that this was another era. <laughs> uh, but that said, that um, wasn't too far from the truth back then, the last century. So, and then then you go through the next stage of a growth, uh, and establishment phase. So, do I stay at school or do I go into work? And then you move into uh, perhaps uh, into a into a job. Um, and and through maybe through advancement for some, certainly maintenance, and then through to disengagement. Donald Super called it decline, um, which was effectively retirement. Um, so it was a very much a linear pathway. And the, the kind of mantra of the day was, you know, find a find a really good company, uh, look after it, find a really good job in a really good company, and look after it, and kind of stay there forever. That was the idea, and that was fantastic for a while. <laughs> For many years, um, and then in the '90s we had this terrific uh, downsizing, particularly in Australia, in that uh, the '91 recession really hit hard in Australia, and actually played a key role in changing the mindset of people about jobs for for life. You know that the the, the uh, generation X at the time saw their their parents uh, losing their jobs after 40 years in some cases, and said, "Right, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me." I'm going to be in charge of my own career. I'm going to be a free agent, and I'm going to run my career the way I want, and not be at the mercy of, of uh, a cycle like that. And, and that, that took us right into the noughties then. And then we started seeing this recycling uh, of careers happen. And this is what I'd call the new model now. So, in some ways, there's some of the same stages of what Donald Super identified in the last century, but uh, except hopefully more enlightened <laughs> uh, but uh, what we've seen what we more see now is a recycling effect of, of some of those stages and you know it might be three four five times in someone's career now there that's anticipated and many more jobs so the basically the old model was linear straight line very much structured today it's more of a, a recycled approach through many many different cycles which is just terrific if unless you don't know how to do it. And that's where, again, I come back to. the It's a really fantastic opportunity now for leaders to hop in there with their employees and actually help them navigate that pathway. Because I think with the advances in technology, that's coming at us like a tsunami uh, of change right now. And with that, you know, the growth of AI and automation. The gig economy is already, you know, that's not even futuristic, that is here and now. The gig, gig and sharing economies are really reshaping the career landscape. So that's feeding this whole recycling piece. So there's a need to think about how we're going to manage that, how we're we going to move from from one career to another. How do we transition that? And is it just going to be by luck or is it going to be by or chance or is it going to be more of a structured approach and what sort of tools do I need as an employee and more particularly in the context of the book is as a leader, how can I actually help them? And that can be challenging for leaders because it might be that whilst we talk about retention, it might be that having the career discussion is about actually helping them join a new organisation and that can be challenging for some leaders to to think about in that way. Um, but it may be absolutely the best thing for the person to leave the organisation and as a leader it's your responsibility if that's what's going to be best for them to actually help them do that and at least get the benefit of their experience um, and skills while you've got them and they might actually come back to you at some later stage down the track but I think this will be the new paradigm um, and moving forward and I think it's already there now but I think we'll see this real really grow and increase, uh, particularly over the next few years and certainly over the next decade.
0: What is the... the you also talk about the new career reality. Yeah. Is that... The, explain that for the listeners.
1: OK, so the new career reality is really what I've just been talking about in the context. I'm, what I'm thinking about there is the, the impact of technology particularly. Um, it's just inescapable where... Uh, routine tasks will be done by machines, and um, the more uh, cognitive functions will be performed by humans. So that's a really great opportunity for human beings. So it's a natural place to add value, rather than doing just repetitive tasks that a machine can do. Um, and then, of course, the gig and the sharing economy. But yeah, you know, I was look. Uh, Deloitte's uh, published a study in May this year and they predicted in that that two-thirds of jobs would be soft-skill intensive by 2030. And 86% of jobs created between now and 2030 will be knowledge for knowledge worker roles. So that's... I mean, there's some pretty stunning statistics, and there's lots of other studies that tend to point. It's not just Deloitte's report. There's lots of other studies that tend to point in the same, same direction as that. And I think this is helping to shape the new career reality, so what you've got to make sure is that the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, isn't, isn't an oncoming train. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I'm I'm personally a big fan of frameworks, models and tools. I, I really do think that they they allow people to take a theory or a concept and, and apply it in a real practical sense. Sure. So pretty much straight off the bat, you introduce a model which you call the career leadership leaders model. Yeah. Uh, are you able to sort of, as much as possible, in an audio format, sort of
1: explain? Describe it, yeah. yeah, explain what that is yeah. to listeners. Like usual, and I, I like to uh, have some uh, visuals which can't be seen here, but I'll do my best to describe <laughs> them. Uh, but I do like to have a visual about you know what uh, what's available to you as a leader, so you can grab hold of the concept quickly. So what I identified was basically four areas. One was uh, as leaders, self insight, and goal setting. Uh, deep listening and connectivity, emotional uh, or stress and stress control and motivation, and reframing and and communication. So they were the four levers, and what I've what I've shown diagrammatically is those four levers then feeding into four quadrants, that are uh, the the uh, the vehicles by which you might use those levers. So in the case of self insight and goal setting, um, that's going to feed vision. And uh, goal setting, so that's that's uh, which is quite crucial because this is where we find meaning and careers themselves are really important to us because they they facilitate socialisation and they provide meaning in our lives in both our professional and personal lives. In terms of deep listening and connectivity, if there was one one aspect of today that I would encourage all listeners to focus on, um, and particularly if they're a leader. Or even if they're not a leader, um, is is deep listening or listening per se? No matter how good your listening skills are, uh, it's a life. I think that's a lifelong journey of improving it. That's why I don't like to scale listening like on a scale of one to five. How good are you? Because you know, if you say you know four, then you kind of think, well, I'm nearly there. Yeah, I'm pretty as good as almost as good as I can be. And and yet, I think that no matter how great a listener you are now. It's 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 worthwhile to be on that journey of just being a better, list, you know, improving your listening skills, and and particularly deep listening, which is really where I'm connected with you. Um, so the, the way I like to think about listening is on four levels. So it's cosmetic listening, which is kind of looks as if I'm listening, but I'm not. Um, uh, conversational listening is yes, I'm listening, but I'm only listening to the extent of waiting for you to finish talking so I can have my say, and then. Active listening, which is we're getting the right territory there. So active listening, I'm taking notes. might be in a lecture, theatre, or perhaps I'm a juror in a courtroom. Um, And then there's deep listening, and this is where I'm actually really uh, tuned into you. I'm aware of your verbal and non-verbal cues. I'm aware of your animation. And this kind of thing is really important when you're working with someone in their careers to see not just what they're saying to you, but what their level of animation is, which points to their motivation and uh, how excited they are about what they're talking about. I've worked with many people and I'll be telling their story and you can tell exactly when, you know, they're talking about a period in their life that wasn't exactly, you know, the best fun compared to that that's fun. It's just by watching their body language. You know, they sit up and they're you know, animated and they're telling their story using their hands as opposed to their shoulders sort of slumped down. So being highly attuned to that is really Key, but it's actually quite hard work. It's quite hard work. Some of my colleagues who do this, you know, they'll they'll do they'll be deep listening with me, and I say, for goodness' sake, cut it out, like I'm exhausted. Sorry. So you can't be in deep listening mode all the time because it can be can be quite exhausting. Um, obviously, being able to control your emotions and manage your emotions. Um, is really, really quite crucial in this, and and a way of helping others to do the same. So that's where emotional intelligence comes in, and um, and gets wrapped up in your ability to to help others uh, manage their emotional and their stress control as well. Um, and I think the way I like to think about emotional intelligence, put simply, whilst there's been, you know, the research uh, goes goes back uh, goes way back to the nineties with my own Salovey, and then. Daniel Goleman popularised it in, 19, in the mid-90s. Uh, whilst there's been so much researched and written about, the way I like to think of it is just simply, you know, how to make sure your emotions don't stop you achieving your goals. It's as simple as that. Um, but I think it does tend to wrap up beautifully the communication skills you need as a manager, whether it's to do with, um, you know, uh, either the social competences or the personal competencies you need. And emotional intelligence and then there's uh, reframing and thinking and I, I like to for me solution the solution focused notion is a really important part of that um, and it's one of the most powerful communication tools I came I was uh, introduced to it um, in the early noughties. I wish I'd known about it 20 years earlier so powerfully the 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 uh, Power of it lies in simplicity, so incredibly simple. Um, to and if you can help others think in the same way, um, then that's a really important thing I think. Benefit that leaders can bring.
0: You talk about this idea of the art of reinvention. Mm-hmm. So, what are we reinventing?
1: Well, I think in terms of what I was saying about that, recycling ourselves for different career stages, Julian. I think that um, you, that's in this world, particularly with the way the employment market's reshaping with new jobs emerging and 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 old jobs, other jobs becoming redundant. In fact, I was reading again about the organisations that are producing, this uh, manufactured a machine called Hadrian X. Fascinating to read that. I'm sure if your listeners have come across it, but it's a bricklaying machine. And it, it, uh, they're saying that this machine will lay a thousand bricks in an hour, which would take two people two days without meal breaks to lay the same number of bricks, according to this organisation. So you know that's a, just one example. We've seen you know that the, the uh, automotive industry deal with automation for years now, and and the effects of that. What what's happened there? But I think that. The way the economy is reshaping with careers, and particularly around the direction of where we're going to be adding value, which is a natural place for us to add value, is in the um, human interaction space. So machines will do everything else; we don't need humans to do that, and we can allow them to be innovative and creative and and uh, and, and add value that way. So I think. That's going to change the nature of jobs quite a bit, already is, which means we need to reinvent ourselves. To do that, then we need to know, well, firstly, what does that look like? And then secondly, how do we go about it? And one of the big, uh, really fundamental pieces in reinventing ourselves is understanding our transferable skills. It's not rocket science. It's quite easy, in a sense, to, you know, we're talking about, you know, things like leadership and teamwork and collaboration and innovation, creativity. For instance, they are all, all of those uh, skills are transferable, where we can take it from uh, career to career to career, and particularly if they're humanistic ones, particularly if they're humanistic ones. So, for instance, with machine, it's no point trying to compete with machines. Um, just absolutely no point at all. In fact, we don't even know how the brain thinks. We still don't know how the brain thinks and reasons, but that's a natural place for us to be. I was listening to an expert talking about this just recently, and uh, they said that they saw AI, they saw AI and automation as being uh, a, a, fa- a function of risk and um, risk and probability. So. Um, if if, uh, if a machine could visual, visually see uh, a cup, it would say, well, what, with all its programming into me, I, I, you know, I've got a 99% certainty it's a cup. <laughs> That's how it works, yeah, which is fine. And this person was explaining that it really resonated with me because they said, well, if you're producing an algorithm to diagnose cancer, you would want it to be really, really, really accurate however they said if you were if you're writing an algorithm to sort out the black jelly beans from every other color then well it'll do that but it was kind of got an eighty percent right you know it doesn't really matter so it was about relative risk and, and uh, probability um, whereas with with humans it's it's all about the humanistic side and building empathy and rapport which machines it doesn't how doesn't matter how well the algorithms written it's just never going to do it
0: Chapter four, you start by this idea of building career and self insight. Mm.
1: So, why is that such an important aspect of? Yeah, well, look, uh, I put it in, in this book because, uh, in the context of when I wrote this for leaders, was really around, I call the chapter Fit Your Own Mass First. And it was really about for leaders understanding themselves first. Now, we know this in any sort of leadership program. It's, you know, being comfortable with your own skin—we've uh, all been fed a diet of of, of that sort of stuff—and it's great. It's very true, and the same is true for careers as well. So, understanding yourself is a very, very place, the first place to start because that's where you'll unlock all the answers to your direction. Not, often, when we don't know what we want to do next, it's because we don't know some of the key, some of our key drivers. And when you unlock those, uh, then some of those decisions become uh, much clearer. You get uh, clarity can come a lot clearer from that. So, and we're talking about um, there's some key ones. Obviously, you need to know your skills. And when I talk about skills, I'm thinking um, certainly transferable skills, but I'm also thinking about the ones I want to use. So, not just the ones I can do. So, for instance, um, I'm I'm pretty well. I think I'm pretty good at analysis, but I really hate doing it. I re- and so I don't tell people because they get me if they know they get then get me doing it so it's it's not just about the skills we've got but the ones that we really love using and there's some skills that, that I've got that I just prefer not to use at all um, and then there's career drivers which is really in another in another way talks about motivators you know what we and it's and there there's they're found in our values so they, these are the key motivators that are going to give us they're going to provide us satisfaction and in that in the book there's a survey that's uh, that's nine uh, key drivers but you probably need at least four you the top four satisfied or you're going to find it hard to be uh, really satisfied in your career um, and 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 of course um, uh, your attributes and your your personality and your cognitive makeup just understanding what's important for you reference a, a tool which I'm a, a
0: big fan of which is the, the SWAT. Yeah. So I'm always when I come across other <laughs> leaders and, and, and thought leaders who use some of the same tools, I'm always curious about their take on it. So why do you think that is such a useful tool
1: for leaders? Yeah, yeah, great question. I look I think it's just such a simple simple um, um, analysis to do that's uh, you, can, you can kind of do it on the back of an envelope almost. But it's a way of organising your thinking. And where I really want to focus on more is the strengths and opportunities. You know, it's great to focus on... I'm um, not saying you, you should ignore your weaknesses, but you're, but having a conversation about amplifying someone's strengths is far more engaging than talking about how lousy I am with something. But that said... Um, it is worthwhile and I think in a personal sense it is good to sit down and think about well where are the opportunities sitting what are my strengths and what could come in as an Exocet missile to to put me off uh, off my course so I think the SWOT analysis whilst it's conventionally more used in business strategy um, I I thought was just a natural place to do it personally because I because I could see all the same fundamentals applying. You know, if you were... And, and it's also having a way to put your radar up for what's coming down the, the funnel. You know, if you're on the Earth, if you're on a ship, for instance, in, a, in the in the 1700s and you're up the mast watching for the, the cannonball to arrive, you know, the, if the cannonball was... Uh, you're only going to see the cannonball up the mast when it's just about to hit the ship and there's nothing much left to do except jump off. Whereas if you can have your radar up so that you could see the the Exocet missile was launched, you know, say an hour ago, you've got time to perhaps manoeuvre the ship. So it's all about having that advance warning. I think particularly with what's happening with technology and careers and reshaping the market, whether we're individuals or we're organisations we have to have a mind to what's going on and you can work it out there are some things that you won't necessarily be able to predict but there's a lot that you probably can and and if the better you can be prepared the better you can be it'll be a better position you're in to take advantage of of the opportunity
0: you ask a question uh, which I am always fascinated by the answers that I get because I sometimes ask this question myself. <laughs> and you ask the readers to consider well, what's their personal brand. Yeah. How are you finding leaders are responding to this idea of personal brand? Because my experience is that they're not really putting the focus on it. I think they should be, and they they almost think that it's it's not for them; it's for someone else to determine. Mm-hmm. So, what's what's your view on it all? Well, I think it's
1: absolutely critical. Like you, absolutely critical. And similarly, I think that perhaps there's not the focus that there should be on it. We all understand in business branding, you know, marketing brands or a business brand, no one needs convincing about the power of that. And yet, when it comes to us, we seem there seems to be some other measure for some around the nature of branding. And sometimes I think it's a Some people feel quite awkward about putting themselves forward or uh, perhaps it's just that sort of uh, nice uh, modesty of, you know, I don't want to put myself out there too much. Um, But it's not very helpful when you're thinking about your career. So personal branding is absolutely fundamental. And the reality is we've all got a brand, whether whether we know it or not. We've all got a brand. The only question is, are you managing it or is it managing you? And uh, that's why I say about social media, for instance, an incredibly powerful tool. We all know that. We still don't really know what social media can do, but already it's having a massive impact around the world. And yet, um, but yeah, you've got to be really careful about how you use it too. We've seen plenty of that. You know, um, you put something in cyberspace; it's there forever. You know, talk to some politicians who put up something. You know, 20 years ago, it comes back to haunt them. Well, it just so,
0: happened, didn't it, with
1: um, the with, Canadian Prime did, Minister? That's right, uh, Justin Trudeau.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly right. So you've got to be really careful about how you manage your brand. You know, the experts will tell you in, in business land, you've got, like, there's something negative goes out in social media about your product. You've probably got two or three hours to respond. That's, the, that's how quick it is before it does really big damage to your brand. Um uh, and I think in the same way for your personal branding you've got to be really careful uh, and try and manage it as tightly as you can about what's out there and because the question is is perception reality is your perception of your brand the actual reality that's out there and if it isn't what are you going to do about it and how do you manage that
0: also talk about mentors so obviously I'm a big Believer in Mentor, my first book was about mentoring. So I'm curious, why do you
1: suggest that mentors can help? Coaching's more a facilitative process, a collaborative facility process. So the coach would would provide, uh, the coaching framework will be asking questions uh, more than anything else. And the ability to ask the right questions lies in their skill of the, the coach. always say, you never know the, uh, one of my favourite sayings is you never know the question you've asked until you've heard the answer to it but uh, but in contrast with mentoring so like so coaching conjures up in my mind so I, uh, an athlete with uh, a coach observing a top athlete with a stopwatch in their hand whereas mentoring you got kind of to get this image of a an old man with <laughs> a long beard and robes yeah. and sandals yeah and um, because but i think that's the right sort of imagery because mentoring is about uh, someone who's walked in your shoes, someone metaphorically older and wiser who can provide advice. So, you know, this is, yes, I've struck this situation before and this is how I go about it. And, you know, in my view, really great mentors are also coaches, but they're actually really hard to find. It's really hard to find a, a mentor who's also a really great coach. And sometimes in the, the engagement, you might flip from one to the other. You might... You know, go out of coaching mode into mentoring mode, and and really skilled mentors who are also great coaches know how to do this. But mentoring is really fundamental, and I think in in ideally the mentor would know about your industry, uh, and ideally would know about your your company, but not necessarily. But ideally they would. Whereas coaching you don't need to know anything about the person's industry. You don't need to know anything about their, their company or anything like that. It's because the, the the skill lies in the process whereas mentoring is really providing advice based on experience and they're quite fundamental difference but really powerful um, and I think an individual um, could uh, uh, in my view have both a coach and a mentor because they play quite quite different roles unless you're lucky enough to have one who can do both but they're rare.
0: The goal of goal setting I was interested in this because you know, mm. what we know is that it's important to be clear about your goals mm. but there's so many different approaches to goal setting so I was curious yeah. to,
1: to get your views on it Well in the spirit of solution focus I like to keep it simple <laughs> <laughs> and it's simple as uh, simple as it can be, which I think was what Einstein once said, keep it simple, but no more simpler than it has to be. Um, look, I think I really like um, Tony Grant's approach to to goal setting, and he he's got uh, you know, he's got a book called uh, "As a Solution the Coaching Focus Solution Focus Coaching." I'm sorry, "Solution Focus Coaching." So um, Anthony Grant and Jane Green wrote that book, and they. Uh, In that, he sets out uh, uh, a very simple model, but effective one of setting a goal, developing an action plan from it, acting, monitoring, then evaluating. Uh, Obviously, if it's successful, then then it's complete. Uh, and, And if it's not, then change what's not working, go through the process again in a continuous Of feedback loop, and of course, making uh, having goals as being smart goals so specific, measurable, attractive, realistic, and time frame. Now, that's been around for a long time, but I frankly can't find anything better Mm -hmm. to use myself than making sure they're smart. But I think, um, I think for some people, it's not so much in the process, uh, but it's how they think about goals. So, some people. Uh, you, and you're right to focus on this, Julian, because in my experience, some people have a lot of trouble setting goals, and, and, and whilst others have too many goals, they, got, they get goal diffused. They've got so many goals, nothing ever gets done, because uh, they're too goal diffused. But I think setting goals uh, does need some encouragement sometimes. Uh, some people can be anxious about setting goals, and it's a really great place as the leader to actually help them do that. But if you set, have a structured approach, you've got a follow-up mechanism so to, to help them stay on track. Because most people can, if they can set a goal, then the next challenge for them will be to stay on track. You know, uh, if it's, uh, for instance, an example that comes to mind would be weight loss. You know, if you set a weight loss and say, well, I'm, I'm going to lose 10 kilos. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe that's over three months. So there's your, your goal. You know, to lose ten kilos over three months, and then three weeks in, you go out for a big dinner. He's like, Oh, well, that's it. The, the diet's over." <laughs> you know, but it's so it's it it's quite can be quite tricky sometimes just staying on track. Instead of just saying, "No, well, you know, a not you know, a dinner out's not going to make any difference. I'll get back on track tomorrow." So I think it's about setting goals, but then holding the coach in or their leader. Uh, it, it, the, the, the opportunities to help them stay focused on their goal um, and as I said the model that um, uh, Tony Grant and Jan Green have got in, in that uh, solution focused coaching I think provides a really really nice little model to, that shows exactly how to do that Also talk about this skill
0: will matrix uh, which are useful ways to lead and coach and I uh, this wasn't one that I had uh, come across before, oh. so I want to know about
1: it. <laughs> Again, it's a, it's a great little heuristic yep. um, about uh, that really means if you can work out which quadrant you're in, we've got four of them. There's guide, delegate, excite, and direct, and they're all a function of either high or low skill or high and low will. And then you can kind of get a bit of a mud map of what to do if you end up with... You know, whichever quadrant you end up with. So, if you were in the uh, the bottom left quadrant, which is direct, so this is where you've got is in the person low skill and low will. Um, then the first thing to do is you might want to check out well what's going on. You know, why have you got low skill or low will? Identify the motive, uh, the motivations, and then build will and skill. So it's quite quite simple. Um, and you want to, in that case, foster small steps. So you know you might be making big leaps but any small step you want to be celebrating uh, if you then looked at the top right quadrant which is around uh, delegating so this is you know almost the perfect the sweet spot if you might you might say that so the person has high will they're really motivated and they're highly skilled so it's kind of leave them alone <laughs> in that in that case if you're coaching them is give them the space to to do their own thing. Um, and, and, and provide um, uh, you know digre- discretion for them to for self-direction and just provide the support uh, and resources as they need it rather than um, you know perhaps in the other in the diametrically opposite we had low will and low skill where you're going to have to be pay far more attention and and be more directive so that's that's really the model it's a great little heuristic uh, really works. I've used it lots of times to figure out what I'm going to do next with with uh, a coachy. But it helps them uncover their motivations and and uh, move forward. And and you can. It's also a great way of framing solution-focused questions and and you know helping them with picking up on unrealised uh, patterns or behaviours. Yeah.
0: Talk a little bit mm-hmm. deeper about that. Uh, solutions focus is you've you mentioned it a couple of times and I, I it's something which I also subscribe to. Let's not spend all our time worrying about the problem. Let's think about you know what's the solution. The solution. Yeah. So what why do you think that's such a, a necessary aspect of people that, that are in leadership roles that want to develop these career conversations, want to build the capability?
1: Yeah simply because it works. <laughs> <laughs> it works. Uh, Julian in in uh, in a number of years in consulting and running companies, uh, a solution focus is one of the most powerful things that I can think of, and it's powerful, as I said earlier, because it is simple. You know, you don't. Uh, it's the old story you know, of the the engineers seeing the steam train coming down the track and saying, uh, "Well, that's all very well in practice, but will it work in theory?" Yeah. So, with solution focus, we're not concerned about why it's working; we're just concerned that it is. Um, and, uh, uh, and and an understanding, and, and then when we do find out what works, doing more of it. Um, so it's it's a, just one of the most powerful, commu- and it's really a communication tool, it's the way in which we talk about things, because problems um, aren't things, they're not uh, cups and saucers or tables and chairs. Problems are socially constructed by the way in which we talk about things. So if we could change the way we talk about something, then we can change the way that we think about something and not see problems as blocks, but simply ways in which we've yet to ascribe a solution. And if something really is unsolvable, an unsolvable problem, that's all we've we've got money for the till, is unsolvable problems. But if something turned out to be unsolvable, then give it to the unsolvable problem team. Every company's got one, give it to them. Because we're we've only going to be concerned about solvable problems. And I think one of the, the things I've seen, gosh, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in where groups of managers have sat around talking about a problem. And the more they talk about it, the bigger and bigger and bigger the problem gets. Till everyone gets exhausted and overwhelmed by it. A, oh, gosh, there's no answers here. So it's about changing, breaking that cycle of our thinking and thinking differently. And, and sometimes, too, we. Tend to think about um, about things in terms of, you know, when asked what do we want, uh, answering with what we don't want. Is that well? I don't know what I want, but I can tell you what I don't want. But that's not actually very helpful. Yeah. It's not very helpful at all. So if I went into a a supermarket with a shopping list of what I didn't want, the funny old shopping basket I'd end up with. Yeah. So. It's really about looking for what's working. We're looking. We're not looking for wrong and right. We're looking for uh, good and better, and we want to know what people are doing when things are better. I was once consulting with an organisation um, that was um, that had taken over part of a public sector uh, service provider, um, and they the the company that took them over. They had some technology they wanted. And the company that took them over um, were quite entrepreneurial and fast on their feet. And this group that they acquired were were not as nimble that they, that they were used to. And uh, they were quite the, the the managing director was quite upset about it because uh, uh, they felt that it was affecting the performance of their organisation. So I sat and listened to this person, the chief executive, tell me about this problem of the two groups and the problems, and and probably after about the first 10 minutes, I had the gist, but I let it let uh, the person tell their story for about 45 minutes, and then I just uh, asked one simple question at the end of the 45 minutes was, well, where is it working? Where is it working? So exceptions are really important, and the answer in this case was, well, it's not working anywhere. So you just keep pushing, you know, keep delving. Well, come, there must be somewhere, Till finally we kept drilling. And we found, kept peeling the onion. We finally found a team in the back corner was working. So we spent our time looking at what was going on within. Why was it working there? What was going on? What were they doing to find the answer everywhere else? But it completely changed the conversation from being completely downcast and dispirited to being energised as suddenly we'd seen a glimpse of the solution, but it was disguised as something else. You talk about this
0: idea of reframing problem-focused language yeah. and uh, uh, I'm familiar with reframing, but I think it's important that you, know, you share with the, with the listeners w- what you're thinking around this, this idea of reframing problem-focused language.
1: Yes. Well, it's reframing, again, as part of the solution-focused practitioners toolkit, a really, a really valuable part of it as well. Um, and really shows the power of words just when we reframe a problem-focused matter into a solution-focused matter. For instance, if you're working with someone and they said, um, well, I just don't like working with Julian. How could that be? How could that be? I know. (laughs) Couldn't possibly be But How could that be? Then you could say, well, I I could say as your boss, Julian, I could say, well, that's terrible. You know, what's wrong with Julian, Uh, which is a typical problem-focused question because then the other person then goes into a diatribe of what what they think about Julian and then we all feel lousy and poor old Julian's not even Mm -hmm. in the the mix. Or I could could ask a solution-focused question that will change the nature of that conversation and which could be something as simple as, so you want to get on with Julian? It might sound very simple, but it is simple. But simple doesn't always necessarily mean easy either. But um, it by simply saying, do you want to get... If they say no, well, then that's a different conversation now. But, you know, more than likely you to say, well, yes, of course I want to get on with Julian. You know, what are you, mad? Well, OK, then what's stopping you from doing that? Oh, bang, back. Well, what can we do about that? You know, well, I don't like the way he cuts his hair. Well, we're not going to do anything about that, are we? So... Push that out, the, so immediately you get off the list. So what it will do is channel you into a more helpful place, where with, with things can get actually done, rather than not done, rather than getting all tied up in in the pro, what might be the perceived problem. So uh, that's just you know one example that comes to mind, uh, but often it does come up. You know, it's just about changing the way in which we see something and changing our language. So it's more helpful. So we're trying to get to, it's not wrong or right, it's just good and better. And what are things, what's happening when things are better? So another way you might say is, well, uh, look, tell me about a time. Another way you might address that would be, uh, well, tell me about a time when you really do get on the Julian. Oh, yeah, well, that's when, you know, we're out, you know, we're working on a project together and we're both collaborating. Okay, so tell me in detail about that. I don't want to, you know, you can, you can, I don't want to hear about the other, about what it's not. Just tell me about what's going on when it is working. It's most incredibly powerful. I use this with my teenage children when almost nothing else worked. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a fantastic thing. And the power of words, absolute power of words. It does take practice. It's really simple. It's actually easy to use, and it just takes practice. And the more you practice it, the better you'll get.
0: Talk to me about the GROW model. Uh, It's one that we use, we teach, we train. So whenever I come across someone else who's using it, I'm always looking for insight into how you use it and views on it. So
1: let's talk about GROW. Well, I love GROW. I just love it. I've worked with the GROW model now for many, many years. Um, I've tried to find other models that do it better, but frankly, uh, I haven't. Uh, If you have models, Julian, that that you believe do, I'd love to hear about it. I just think the GROW model um, is such, again, a very simple model, but it works. And when I've been working with groups and in, uh, when we've been running workshops about helping people uh, structure conversations, I've found the GROW model very quickly uh, shows uh, how, or sorry, how quickly uh, people can uh, learn how to have much better constructive conversations using the GROW model than just about everything else. So there's a bit of efficiency around it. It kind of just gets to the quicker the matter and gets to the outputs a lot more quicker. But it also gives seems to give uh, the people I've worked with a lot of confidence in being able you to know, structure the conversation. So rather than just going off and we don't know where it's going, that at least they've got a framework to follow. So, which is, as, as you know, starts with goals and then, you know, and making them smart goals. And you might have two or three goals and, uh, before you rest on your final one or three or whatever it is. Um, and then testing uh, for the reality, you know, what's really going on? You know, what do you think could be happening there? Um, so that then you can frame out the options that might flow from that. And then in a in a wrap up session. So in the options area, that's where I like to use brainstorming and saying, okay, well we've got our, we've set our goals. We kind of got a good understanding of what's what's happening, what's happening around us, um, and now we can get into the fun part, which is about brainstorming and how we're we going to make this happen. And then the wrap up, where if it's in a coaching scenario, uh, particularly is where uh, both parties might make commitments. And um, and particularly if it's the leader, it's an important time to, to actually follow through on your commitment. So if you're going to say you're going to do something uh, at the end of that meeting, it's really critical that you actually do it. Um, and then, of course, you've got regrow, which is um, you know reviewing. The next conversation is starting by reviewing what you did in the last grow session. Really, really simple model that works absolutely beautiful. And uh, I can highly recommend it. Um, to anyone thinking about structuring um, uh, any sort of coaching scenario and particularly career coaching.
0: Well, it's so flexible, isn't it? Because you can use it, the way we train it is you can use it for a development coaching session, so someone's career focused, or you can use it for performance. So if someone's not performing, we're so flexible.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, very well said, Julian. I agree entirely.
0: In Chapter 11, you talk about the need for people to lead a career conversation. Mm-hmm. Why is that such an important aspect
1: of, of leadership and, and why do they need to do it? Well, I think the first point is is I think just being able to open up a career conversation. Not everyone's going to necessarily be pounding your door down as, as their leader and saying, I want to have a career conversation with you. In fact, they may be quite resistant to do that. So as a leader, Uh, as I said earlier, right at the beginning, it's a great opportunity to engage and develop trust and and rapport and that sort of connection where, you know, if there there are headhunters pounding on there, you know, ringing them mercilessly, you know, come to us, come to us kind of thing, uh, they may be more likely to share with you what's going on if you've actually got that sort of connection. Um, So uh, it's about making it easy in the first instance for Individuals to engage with you, to that you've got a confidential environment, um, and that you can trust them with the information. I think that in the, op, in the word trust is the operative one. It's uh, you know, trust is, in my mind, the great enabler of learning. So when there's no, the problem is when there's no trust in an organisation, people hold the information in because they, they're concerned. They're not. They're concerned about what might be done with it oh, I'm not going to pass, you know, I just learned something. but I don't know that I'll share that because I'm not sure what's going to happen. So they tend to hold it in. And the problem is with that, the organisation and individuals keep making the same mistakes over and over and over. No one's learning. So it is the great number of learning. And building uh, a trusted um, uh, a trust, a, a trusted workplace is absolutely crucial. So um, being able to kickstart the conversations is really important. When I talk about leading it, is everything from being able to create the environment for it to happen in, which is understanding the ethics and protocols, um, and then some basic rudiments around how can I open that conversation through to then, well, now I've got the conversation going, what do I do with it? Where do I take it? And I really like a narrative approach. You'll know, come across most of the career assessments out there, and they're all good. They all have their role to play. But... The one that's most effective that I've found over many, many years is a narrative approach where the individual's just telling their story. And your job as the leader is to help them tell it. It's their story. And by doing that, what you can do is by asking the right questions, you can help lead them to the right answers around uh, perhaps transition points they hadn't recognised or perhaps people in their past that have helped them, that they hadn't quite realised that they'd helped them or events that have helped them. So as you, as their leader, uh, it's a great, great opportunity to help them see uh, what the key transition points are and how that could help them moving forward. To do that, you've got to ask the right questions and let them tell their story. And the narrative approach takes longer. It's not like a 10-minute you know, fill-in-the-boxes the thing. Uh, it takes longer, but it's incredibly powerful. You'll learn so much. From each other through the process, and it's by and large, it's fairly enjoyable.
0: You write about the importance of ethics and protocols mm. when it comes to career development. Mm. So, why is that such a important aspect?
1: Well, It's absolutely critical it's, uh, as far as the uh, as far as any aspect of coaching goes. Uh, in this context, we're talking about careers, but critical to any any aspect of coaching. I think in the in the case of ethics. In the first instance, it's about knowing that ethical dilemmas dilemmas will arise. You know, if you're coaching or you're in leadership or having career conversations, it's almost guaranteed you're going to trip across your fair share of ethical dilemmas. And knowing that there's sometimes no easy answers to those, that they're not black and white. They rarely are black and white. Um, and what I find is, in the first instance, is just to recognise it, to know they exist, uh, not to be perplexed if if the answer is not immediately available, um, and where I find that the the answers are often found when you hit one of those, one go first step go back to your own values, just go to your value set and see what that tells you about what to do. You'll probably find the answer there. In my experience, um, the other aspect is where mentors come in. Now, mentors are a great way to, to if you hit an ethical dilemma. Without breaching confidentiality, you can go to your mentor and talk about a particular situation and see if they've hit this before and see what advice. So mentors can be a really, really great way to, when you hit a tricky situation. But what I'd say is don't get perplexed by it. Uh, Don't feel um, in any way inadequate. If you hit something, you don't know the answer. Join the club. We've all been there. And unless you're hitting a fair share of ethical dilemmas, you're probably not doing too much coaching. So just know they exist. The one thing I would say, though, um, is not to dabble in anything that even looks like therapy. So if someone needs therapy, they're in the wrong room. They need to be, if you, if you suspect that, um, then refer them on to the appropriate professional. Most organisations have a... Uh, uh, an employee assistance program, EAP program, or perhaps you might be referring them to your GP. So, but if you if you're concerned about therapy, make sure you refer them to the right person. So, they would be the two things I'd say about ethics, and then the other aspect is around engagement protocols, which is more um, around the logistics of how you um, set up the the the, uh, the conversation. And, and uh, some of the uh, hygiene issues that you want to have to sit around with.
0: You encourage people to have a written career plan. Mm-hmm. I would have to, and this is a hunch, this is a hunch. Mm-hmm. Take your word for that. I reckon that uh, of all the leaders I've trained over the years, I, I, I don't even think there would be double digits that. Could reach into their back pocket or their laptop and say, "Here's my written career plan." Why do you suggest
1: it's such an important thing to do? Well, and and many people have been very successful either having something on the back of an envelope or just perhaps just in their head. Um, But my my argument would be if it's not it's not coaching unless it's written down. That's really my the the foundation of, of. what I've got to, to say about it. And I think the discipline of doing that... Look, I'm not a great... Uh, I, sometimes I have to make myself write plans as well even when I know that they're good for me. Yeah. But uh, it is worthwhile, the, the, the sheer evidence of, of what happens when you do it. And when I write a plan, I usually get to where I'm going. And when I don't, I usually don't. So it's really about reward and effort for me. Right. And... Um, but I think writing the career plan writing any plan but in this case career plan help make you think about all the key areas whether it's about self-insight or it's about how i'm going to market myself how i'm going to promote myself and you can think through it and dive back into your swot analysis as well and cross cross back to those inputs to see you know what's going to affect your plan how you might execute it so uh, but it's most fundamental if it's it's not coaching unless it's written down, and then you've got a document you can refer to, uh, and then refer back to it. And I'd say refer to it regularly. It's pretty hard to do that when it's just in your head, yeah. and your head gets uh, if you're like me, my head gets scrambled a lot of the times. So I like to have stuff written down. And I can see it and say, oh you know, yeah, well the goal have moved, so I need to I need to adjust my goals because they're not going to be realistic. They were realistic. Twelve months ago, they're not realistic now. I need to make some fine tuning, and I think it just enables you to do that much more clearly. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you were a leader in a business, this is the, the, the perhaps the irony to your point, Julian, is if you're a leader, if you were perhaps a manager in a business, and you just got a new chief executive, and the chief executives came in to meet you, said, oh, "Hello, Julian, it's nice to nice to meet you. I'm your new CEO. Uh, can you show me your plan?" And you said, Well, can you? Yeah, well, I haven't got one. I just make it up as I go. You know, you you're kind of, the chief executive, you wouldn't blame them for feeling a bit, you know, yeah, oh, absolutely. how comfortable I feel about this person. And yet, for some reason, when we think about career plans, we think that that seems to be okay. Mm. So I think it's just about changing our thinking around it, reframing yeah. for success, reframing for solutions, because we know that we're thinking about what works. We know that writing career plans work. They don't have to be some beautiful piece of prose. It can be dot points. It can be um, whatever's meaningful for you, but it does need to get written down.
0: Are there any books or people that inspire
1: you? Yeah, well, predictably, I've spoken a lot today about solution focus. So um, Paul Jackson and has, Mark McCurgar um The Solution Focus is a terrific book for if, you, if you're looking to to, uh, to understand what Solution Focus is about, that's just a terrific book, um, as is uh, Joan Green, Anthony Grant Solution Focus Coaching, where they've applied it to that as well, or indeed my own. Um, another book which is a bit dated now, but I love it, is uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point. Okay. Absolutely fascinating book. Uh, it's all about system theory, and yet you, you won't see that mentioned anywhere in the 200 pages. It's a terrific book, and Daniel Pink's Drive. Um, another one is Patrick Lencioni's The Advantage. I really like Patrick Lencioni in the way that he thinks about uh, teams and uh, and his uh, his pillars. So uh, I really uh, I I love uh, love his work and uh, really well worth reading.
0: Okay. So, if people want to find out more about you, they might be interested in engaging you or, or hearing what you've got to say a bit further. Where should they go?
1: Okay. So, uh, if you want to know just a bit about me in a, in an overview sense, so go to my LinkedIn profile. Um, I've spent a bit of time trying to make that yeah really encapsulate what I'm all about. That you get not just what I've done, but actually the spirit of what I believe in and what. Uh, what I try to do Um, obviously uh, I can go to uh, deliverpractice and you'll find uh, plenty about uh, uh, career conversations uh, and me there and um, or just Google me Um, I've got Um, there's been quite a number of uh, papers published and what have you so if you Google me you'll find me uh, in around the the millions of pages of Google with various articles uh, uh, around uh what I, what I like to uh, to think of in this way.
0: Any last words on leadership and
1: career conversations? Last words. <laughs> <laughs> Look, really, I think it's about just about talking to your people. I think if you're a leader, you know it's it's easy. And I know I've been a chief executive. I know when it's you're busy and you've got. Strategy and competitors and board papers and all the other stuff going on and, and particularly when you hit some glitches where it's easy to prioritise connecting with your people down down the, the line push it down the, the line but it's the one thing I'd really uh, recommend that you don't because you know, it might be the conversation that you say I haven't got time sorry Julian I can't do that today and then tomorrow you've got a resignation on your desk that, that a Half our conversation may have taken you down different, different direction, particularly if that person is really pivotal to your business. And in practice, that's pretty much what happens. And headhunters have got an uncanny knack of finding people's um, pain points, you know, particularly the talented ones uh, in the organ. And they they'll needle them, and uh, until they you know they can uh, get them interested to come over to their side of the equation. So, you know, it's it's really about. Uh, making sure that you prioritise it and that if something's got to suffer, uh, that's not one of them. Um, and I, I just don't think in moving forward with the, the pace at which technology is changing the employment landscape, I just don't think leaders can afford to not do it. So for leaders who, who have perhaps got by with subpar soft skills, I don't think that's going to be possible moving forward. I I think uh, looking at where that's going, as as a leader, you're going to really need to uh, have a strong capability in well, those soft And so, if that's not perhaps your strong suit today, then uh, it'd be a good time to start uh, developing them, and they can be developed either through coaching or mentoring or other means. Um, so that'd be the The key key aspects. I think that just talk to your people. I think your employees are going to going to thank you for it. You're going to be a better leader for it, and your organisation is going to be more successful. So, um, you know, everyone's a winner. I just can't see why why you wouldn't. And uh, that's a fantastic opportunity. As much as the uh, technology is making changes, and for some, it will be changing jobs or. Or more particularly careers, there's some fantastic opportunities. I couldn't think of a a more exciting time to be in business than right now.
0: Absolutely agree. On that note, thank you so much, Greg, for being part of the Soon Engine Leadership Podcast. All the best. Thank you
1: very much, Joy. It's been great to be with you.
0: Well, that wraps up episode 93 of the Soon Engine Leadership Podcast. Another great author interview episode for you. I would like to encourage you to head on over to the Singing Group website, engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode. Tell us who you'd like us to interview or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver to. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review. It really does help us build awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, of another great curriculum ecosystem episode for you where I introduce a model called the Jahari Window. It's another great episode. Until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening.